verse 4. And let's leave ourselves not hopeless. Yea, more with this own hand he seemed intent, intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. See, what happens here is John Newton is, is in a way going to the Lord seemingly to deal with his sin. But God reveals to him that he's really not dealing with his sin. He's concealing his sin. And so in the song, what Newton is relating to us is the manner in which we ought to be approaching the Father about our sin, not, not, not feigning a false contrition, which is, the, which is what's teasing out here. Verse 6, Lord, why is this? I, tremble, I trembling cried, will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. And so you're singing that song and you're saying to yourself, well, man, what's going to happen here? I mean, this is, this is not good, but it is good. And John Newton was a great physician of the soul. He, he truly had a grasp of God's grace and mercy. And if we understand his life and what he did before God saved him, you'll understand why he's writing this. Now, hymns are full of theology. Isn't it interesting that John Newton, now contrast this with what we hear so much today that is so popular, and, and contrast it with the hymnology of a Puritan's heart, of a theologian's heart, one who understands God's grace. He's not afraid to write a song about how to deal with your sin biblically and correctly, understanding what God will do with that. That's significant. That's significant. And so we need to be attentive to that. And so uh, next time we sing it, we'll make certain we sing all seven verses. (laughs) So there was a conundrum, so no worries, but we'll uh, we'll get there. So we're going to continue today in Colossians, um, enjoying our time in this wonderful epistle. I'm very excited to get to preach to you today been somewhat chomping at the bit to get back here um, because there's, there's just so much to glean from what Paul has for us here. Colossians chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, and I trust that you do, have them. As the redeemed of Christ, we want to have his word with us, and um, I hope that you have a pen and paper to take notes and are prepared to, to do that today. And so, let's, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get started here. Our blessed Heavenly Father, Lord, we are so grateful for all that you have done for us. Thank you for the grace and mercy you've extended into our lives. Uh, Thank you for so great a salvation. Um, We are overwhelmed by a God who graciously deals with us, even in the context of what we just sang about, how even in our prayer you reveal to us how we might be even trying to conceal sin from you in some way. Forgive us for that. Thank you for dealing with us patiently and lovingly in a long-suffering way. 
Help us to um, be, be overwhelmed by the care and, and love that you extend to us. Such a loving Father, the everlasting Father, the, the eternal Father, the one who cares for us always, regardless of all that is going on. As we look around the world, we're overwhelmed by all the information, all of the data that we receive. It's a never-ending stream of seemingly bad news, difficult circumstances, perplexing conundrums, mysteries, and rumors, and uh, conspiracies of all sorts. Our minds are overwhelmed during the course of the week, yet we come here today in humble and simple, sincere faith and rest at your feet knowing that you are in control of all things, that you are not surprised or shocked. No one has done anything that is thwarting your purpose or your will or your good pleasure, and you will see all things to its appropriate end by and through which you will be glorified forever and ever and ever. Thank you for that. We lift up to you today those who are in the midst of great personal conflict and struggle and war, In Russia and Ukraine, we ask that you would be with those who know you there, that you would protect them from those who would harm them, that you would keep them from um, uh, the devastation and things that are going on. But even if they do experience them, we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen their resolve and their faith in the finished work of Christ, that you would give pastors boldness of speech and of conviction, that they would point people to Christ give them the gospel, and communicate to them that their only hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. May there be many saved through this time, and many brought into your kingdom, we pray. Bless us this day, Lord. Keep us and preserve us for your glory and for your honor, we pray in the blessed name of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. The title of my message today is Knowledge in Action, and and for Paul... We see here in Colossians chapter 3 that he is indeed concerned about the manifestation of one's genuine conversion in the way that they act, in the way that they do things. As we understand Scripture, it's based upon a paradigm of guilt, grace, and gratitude. Guilty and condemned outside of Christ, God extends to us grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and in response to that, we graciously and gratefully serve him and live for him, not in order to gain more merit, not in order to become more saved, not in order to garner more favor or somehow appease the Father. You are fully at peace with the Father through the finished work of Jesus Christ the moment you are saved, and it will be that way forever and ever and ever. And we rest in that. We here at Community Bible Church, the redeemed of God, are people who like to rest. Rest in Jesus Christ. And so we make certain that our focus is in the context of understanding who we are as the believers in Christ and that we live our lives in a way that demonstrates the reality of that. Because it's necessary that one who is indeed born again is going to live out the reality of that by manifesting the, the genuineness, if you will, of that conversion. And so Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, don't forget this predicate foundational premise that comes out of verse 1 of chapter 3. That's a big if. And you need to be mindful of that. So if, therefore, if, if you are, it axiomatically, it necessarily follows that something's going to come out of that. 
And that's the whole point that Paul is making here. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So Paul, having spent a lot of time talking about doctrine, the indicatives, the the foundations of what we believe moves into the imperatives, the things that we do as a consequence of the truths that we've been taught. And he begins right here in verse 1 with that. That's word, keep seeking. Verse 2, the same thing. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So Paul now is calling people to do something with their sin, to put it to death, to mortify it. We've talked about the doctrine of mortification. And so this is the idea that we, as the redeemed of God, now have the ability to say no to sin, to fight sin, and to put it to death, which we ought to be doing. And it may be something that we're engaged in, and indeed it is something that we're engaged in pretty much all the time, because each day we are fighting with some particular aspect of our remaining sinful flesh, the desires and things that we have, the corruption that is attendant with this fallen robe of flesh that we are still in. Someday in glory that will be removed from us. What a great thought that is. One of the wonderful things for heaven, about heaven for me, and I'm sure for you too, is the absence of sin. No struggle with sin, no bearing up under sin, no perplexity, no conundrum, no hurt, no damage, no failure in the context of sin. It's all gone. It's all erased because there cannot be any sin in the presence of Christ. Verse 6, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. We're no longer those people. And in them you also once walked, he says in verse 7, when you were living in them. But now you also, this emphasis, Paul teasing out again that they are different, that they are a different type of people, do this now, put them all aside, these other types of sins that are so common amongst people, these relational type problems that come out of sin, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And we're going to be focusing again on verse 9 and moving into verse 10. And have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now again, the title of my message is Knowledge in Action. So this word knowledge in verse 10 is going to be very important for us. And the consequences of it is played out in the balance of this chapter, beginning in verse 11 in part, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so, as we understand uh, from looking at this passage here in Colossians, Paul is communicating the importance of the idea of what has been put to death, the idea that we are new creation in in Christ Jesus. Verse 9 begins that argument when he continues with communicating the importance of abandoning certain behaviors that are associated with our unregenerate life, that is to not lie to each other, not be false, not be a a pretender, a pseudo-Christian. That's always a problem, deceptively living in that way. And the reason for that is because we have laid aside the old self. Now, Paul's language there is a metaphor, an expression, if you will, to communicate the reality of the transformation that takes place in one's salvation. 
Regeneration necessarily results in the creation of a new being, a new person, a new humanity. This is Paul's anthropology, if you will, the doctrine of humankind. Paul is clearly playing out for us here that there are two and only two groups of people on the face of the planet, the unregenerate and the regenerate. And there is a marked difference between the two because the distinction lies in what God has done to bring about the regenerate. It is something that is uniquely of God. People who are unregenerate do not voluntarily just move themselves into the category of the regenerate because they cannot, because they are dead. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They cannot think the things of God. They do not move in that direction. They are the natural man of 1 Corinthians 2.14 who thinks that this is all foolishness and is not able to discern the word of God. And so Paul here is contrasting, if you will, the distinctions between who we once were and what we now are and what we can be and what we ought to be and how we ought to be living. The old self has now ceased to exist because, as he communicates in 2 Corinthians 5.17, as we looked at last week, we've been made a new person in Christ. Now, our body of sin continues to harass us, though its power importantly, has been broken. That is clearly communicated by what Paul is is saying here. He would not be asking you to do these things if it wasn't possible to do it. You're not being asked to do the impossible. You're being asked to do that which you have been equipped to do. Be who you are as the redeemed of God. Importantly, the cancellation of this this, this control, if you will, this idea of this body of sin no longer compels me to sin. I do not willingly serve it. I do not look for opportunity or occasion to be engaged in this. Indeed, the desires of my heart and my life are now in accord with that of my Redeemer, Jesus Christ. I understand God's law for the first time, and I see it as a moral guideline for me in the way that I should live my life ethically and morally amongst my my fellow believers and the world. Indeed, the idea here that is, is important for us is that as we put these things off, as these things are taken away from us, they're rendered powerless. Now, they don't cease to exist. We still battle with sin. How many of you sinned today? Yeah. How many of you sinned yesterday? Yeah. How many, we, we, know what, we know what that is. We continue to fight this. Romans chapter 7 is the normative Christian life, but we see progress in, in Romans 7 being resolved in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so when Paul says, lay aside the old self, um, this, this idea is, is he's speaking of the change wrought in regeneration at the time of conversion. Now, friends, please, under, this is central You have to understand and grasp the significance of what is taking place with respect to our regeneration. God is saving for himself a people who are peculiar and set apart specifically for him and his kingdom. He is filling people, he is bringing people 
to Christ, his son, to place in the kingdom that his son will reign over. And he's fitting them for service in that kingdom. Notice that there are no third groups of people called neutrals. There are no Swiss in the kingdom of God. Not literally, but figuratively speaking, you know what I mean? The Swiss are famous for being neutral about everything. No. You're either in one or the other. Paul makes that abundantly clear in Colossians 1.13. Somebody, you had to be rescued, taken out of the kingdom of darkness. You were then placed somewhere else. You were not just set off on the side in neutral land where you got to kind of wander about and, and live in this kind of nebulous free will, I'm going to do whatever I want to do and choose how I want to choose type of context. No, God saved you, brought you out of that, rescued you from the domain of darkness, and brought you into the kingdom of light. We'll see that in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 today. As, I mean, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. So Paul here is speaking of the regeneration that is wrought at the time of conversion. It is through faith in Jesus Christ that a person lays aside their former life and lives a new life in Jesus Christ. Faith produces repentance. Repentance doesn't produce faith, but faith is the cause of repentance. Repentance comes out of saving faith. As I said last week, the unregenerate do not repent. But when God saves you, you now need a need for a Savior, and you understand and recognize what sin is. And you look at your life, and you say, okay, I can now live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. I'm not going to do those things anymore. I'm going to put sin to death. I'm going to live for Christ. So we lay aside our former life, and we live a new life in Jesus Christ. Why? Because you're a new person. You have been changed. Christ and Nicodemus, Christ wants to be in the kingdom. Jesus says what? Well, here's a paper you have to fill out. Uh, write down this on this form, tell me everything that you can do, your strengths, your weaknesses, and I'll take a look at it and see if you're qualified to be in the kingdom. We're looking for some really good people, and we hope you fit the bill. And Nicodemus probably would have said, man, I've got this. Man, I am a, I am a Pharisee. I know the law. I am a teacher of the people. If anybody's going to get in, it's going to be me. That's why I'm here first. I'm the first in line. You want me. I'm a good catch. Sign me up. Christ, knowing his heart, immediately says to him, you must be born again. Oh, what? What? Oh, just give me the form. No, you must be born again. No, I want the form. You must be born again. Well, how does that happen? The Spirit wills it. Well, what's that? It's like the wind. You have to be purified, washed, regenerated. So you're becoming an entirely new person. Do not forget this. This is essential to Paul's teaching in Colossians 3. This does not work if you don't get it. You are an entirely new person. And this is a truth which has both individual and corporate aspects to it. There is a cause and effect. There is a necessary consequence to God's creative act in saving someone, and it's a miracle, 
Think about it. People wonder today, well, are there any more miracles? Yeah, you ever seen someone get saved? That's a miracle. A dead person coming to life spiritually? That's miraculous. So the cause and effect of regeneration is important for Paul here. So you have... You have sinful humanity versus redeemed humanity, the distinction being the operation of the cause in one group and not the other. The absence of the cause in one group demonstrates and is played out in the effect how they live their lives. The presence of the cause in one group's life plays out in the consequence of the cause. They live for Christ. Colossians 3.1, he begins right out of the gate, doesn't he? Therefore... If you have been raised with Christ, you can now do something that you never did before. You can keep seeking the things above. You can do what what he says in verse 2. You can fix or set your mind on the things above, not on the things on earth. Verse 5, therefore, you can now put sin to death. Put aside, but now, verse 8, lay aside anger. Verse 9, stop lying, stop being false live in the context of the new humanity. And so for Paul, he's driving home the idea that as a consequence of our great salvation, a peculiar and particular people are created. Corporately, think about this. This is so good. I have been born again to a new life in Jesus Christ. I have been given an entirely new existence. So when I look at verse 9, so we're going to move past that first part in verse 9. Do not lie to one another. Okay, now comma, since since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. So there's 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 a point that Paul is making here, that I have been given this new existence. Corporately, collectively, I have ceased to exist in Adam, and now I exist in Christ. Again, there's not a no man's land between these two kingdoms. You're not merely in transition. I'm becoming who I'm going to be. I'm so sick of that. No, you are who you are. You're either Saved or unsaved. You're either a sheep or a goat. I don't, I don't see any kind of half sheep and half goats walking around. I'm sure they're out there somewhere. Maybe, maybe Puck was one of those. I don't know. But you see the point. Corporately then, now think about this, friends. Corporately, you and me, we have ceased to exist in the first Adam. But we now exist in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. See, everyone's going to be in one Adam or the other. The question is, which one? That's of eternal consequence. In this latter sense, I belong to a new humanity. In such a state, because of what, I, what Christ has done, I am now able to lay aside the old self with its evil practices. This is what kingdom dwellers do. Someone may say to me, well, pastor, what do Christians do? Well, one thing that we do is we stop sinning. 
and we can live in the context of a new humanity. It is precisely because the old self has ceased to exist through, through co-crucifixion with Christ on the cross and because we have been brought into union with Christ, our head, that we are able now in the present to set aside the evil practices that once characterized our life without Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Paul would say that he was crucified with Christ. That's how he pictured himself. There is this, there's this, there's this picture of our, our death along with him, this idea of this co-crucifixion, if you will, that speaks to the, 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 the very dramatic change that is taking place, the, the, the very drama, if you will, of the crucifixion incorporates us into it and we are affected by it forever. So once again, Paul is stressing that we must become in practice what we are by profession of faith and possession and union with Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Paul is stressing that we must become. It's not if you become this. There are no carnal Christians in the kingdom. You're not going to get into heaven by the skin of your teeth in the context of, of some fake salvation. Oh, well, then I'm just going to go ahead and sin all my life and do whatever I want. I'm going to, you know, just live however. No, Paul deals with that in Romans chapter 6. And here's the important thing. You don't want to. In Romans chapter 7, Paul is not enjoying the conundrum that he faces with regard to his own sin. He, he is struggling with it. He is fighting it. He resolves the tension in who? Jesus Christ. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Jesus Christ. He goes right to Christ. That's what you do when you sin. Your sin is a constant reminder that you're not good enough. Your sin is always going to be reminding you of the fact that you're an abject failure when it comes to the covenant of works and that you need someone outside of yourself who wasn't an abject failure, and that is Jesus Christ. So when you sin, it's an opportunity for praise. You can go to the Lord and say, God, I have sinned against you, but I claim all of everything that is attendant with the finished work of Jesus Christ, including his righteousness, which you have given over to me by faith. Praise his name. This is not a license to sin as some would characterize it, but it's an it's, it's a understanding. If you and I understand this, it is a, it's a motivation to not sin. It gives us gratitude. It's that gospel gratitude. It's that, it's that picture of, of understanding the guilt that I was under, the grace that was extended to me, and now the gratitude that I have for this great act of salvation. The great Reformed theologian Herman Bavinck said this, Christ placed us at the end of the road that Adam had to walk not at the beginning. He gives us much more than we lost in Adam. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a beautiful picture? Isn't that a wonderful message? Doesn't that give you hope? Doesn't that communicate to you that, that uh, you now can rest 
in someone else's work rather than your own. Well, in verse, in verse 9, we have this picture of this new humanity. And in verse 10, Paul begins to play out the practical implications of the result of this. What does this newness of life look like? What does this new humanity do? How does it interact with each other? What are the consequences of it? And what moves it forward? What causes it to further develop? Paul says in verse 10, And have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So um, we see here that Paul is moving away from the verse 9, the idea of, of having put on the new self and moving into the context of the reality of the consequences of that, emphasizing again this transformation that is taking place. There are these new virtues and new actions that I am now living in within the context of the new humanity that I am in. I am a different person. I'm a different man. I'm not who I once was. My dad used to tell this story. I think it illustrates it quite well. Augustine, who was a bit of a profligate in his younger days, a womanizer, he liked the girls. The girls liked him, apparently. God saves him. One day he's in the marketplace, and there's a woman who sees him and says, Augustine, Augustine, tis I. And he begins to run, but he says, it tis not I. Augustine was living the context of his new humanity, of his new capacity, of his new identity. Living as a believer, fleeing from sin, putting sin to death, putting sexual immorality to death, not living in a false way. It's interesting to me that, that the language that Paul uses here at the beginning of verse 10 focuses on a change both of regeneration to new life with a new heart individually and of transfer from being counted Adam to being established in Christ corporately. This word, this phrase, new self, that he uses in verse 10 employs a word that denotes the new primarily the, the, the newness in reference to time, the young, the recent, a picture of a present and continuing reality for the redeemed. And so, understanding that, then Paul moves into a picture of how then we are being renewed. This renewal does not take place in a vacuum, and, and this is so important for us. He says in verse 10, and having put on the new self who is being renewed to something, you're not just left to yourself to figure it out, but there is a manner and means by which this renewal is amplified and deepened. It's a renewal to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now, let's think about that. Wow, what a verse. Man, am I going to camp out here. Last week, I noted that any ability to change our ways is a result of Christ having changed our identity. But we must keep in mind that this new identity is tied to a new nationality, if you will, a nationality connected to your deliverance into a new kingdom with a new ruler, with a new way of doing things. You've been made a citizen of a new kingdom. You're a kingdom dweller. It's interesting that our own naturalization process for becoming a legitimate citizen of the U.S. 
And yes, by the way, if you're wondering, those laws are still in effect. They're just not being followed. Requires a process wherein and whereby you become a naturalized citizen of the U.S. if you were not born here. This process requires those seeking that status learn things about their new country. The history of it, the way it works, the rules and principles of freedom that govern it and are conveyed via the Constitution and Bill of Rights, and the benefits and privileges of being a good citizen of this country. Importantly, to enjoy the benefits of this country, you must have knowledge, a knowledge which you must demonstrate you know after you've attended classes on these very things. If you're going to be a citizen of the U.S., you must have knowledge first of how it works, why it exists, and what your mutual obligations are to each other within the context of that nation. Well, so it is with the kingdom of Christ. It doesn't really change that way. Paul here in verse 10 explains what makes a real citizen of Christ's kingdom, which speaks to a work of sanctification being wrought in the redeemed that brings about a renewal, a growth in Christ. There is a, is a requisite knowledge, an understanding that is attendant with one who is in the kingdom of Christ. And it only stands to reason that a kingdom dweller is going to want to know about the governance of the kingdom, right? You're just not going to show up one day and say, I, I don't care what the rules are. No. You now have the ability the capacity, the desire to actually understand how it is that you can live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. The law is now a delight to you. All right? It is now a lamp unto your feet. It's not a stumbling block. Do you see this? And so... You're not left alone to do all this by yourself. God has graciously given to you this wonderful book, the living word of God, which is the truth. The truth. This renewal is brought about by the work and person of the Holy Spirit. It begins at the, con- at the time of conversion and progresses through one's life, through standing in the finished work of Jesus Christ, resting in what he has accomplished and done, and living joyfully and contentedly in his finished work, delighting in all that he has done, and out of gratitude, understanding what he says about your life and how it should look, and doing so while you rest in his finished work, even when you sin. This is the point that Jerry Bridges is making in the book Transforming Grace. He's driving us to the point in understanding that that grace of which he is speaking is so transformative that it allows you to rest even when you sin. Because it's not dependent upon you, it's what God has done for you in Christ. Francis Schaeffer said this, Christianity is not a series of quote-unquote truths in the plural. Now pay attention. But rather... Truth spelled out with a capital T. Capital T truth about total reality, not just about religious things. Biblical Christianity is capital T truth concerning total reality. And the intellectual holding of that total capital T truth and then living in the light of that capital T truth. So when Paul says here in verse 10, since you later... 
put, upon, put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So what I'm understanding now is that there is a right way and a wrong way to think about things. And that my knowledge has to coincide with and comes from he who rescued me from the domain of darkness. There is a new way of thinking that is attendant with this new humanity. And it's based upon not yourself, but upon Christ. So important. So what we see in verse 10 is Paul communicating that when God saves someone, he does not leave them to themselves, but rather renews them in the truth of Jesus Christ. A renewal that, while progressive in nature and not truly realized until we are glorified, results in a new way of living here and now, thinking and interacting with the other side of humanity from which we've just been rescued. Look at this. Go back to Colossians 1 with me for a minute. Remember how Paul prayed for the Colossians? Now, again, this is remarkable to me, and Christians pay attention because I think oftentimes we're praying so wrong that it's unbiblical. You have a country, you have a group of people living in an area that's been devastated by an earthquake. There is, there is problems with the economy because trade routes are changing. They are oppressed and persecuted Christians. This is at a height of, of Christian persecution during that time frame. You have all sorts of problems. You don't have antibiotics. You don't have Tylenol. You don't have Advil. You don't have stat care. You don't have ambulances. You don't have fire stations, police departments, anything. You live under a totalitarian form of government and are at the whim and mercy of just about anybody who comes down the street. Bugs sleep with you at night. Bugs that if they bite you, kill you. Snakes come in, curl up around your feet. If they bite you, you die. Only 50% of the people make it to age 10. One in two children die at birth. What does Paul pray about? For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what he prays for. <laughs> what? Wait up, what about my sore toe? What, what, about, what about, what about, what about, what about? This is what he's praying for. Why is he praying for that? Because he knows that that's important as they live within the context of a new humanity that speaks to their ability to have an impact on the culture in which they are living and the people to whom they are neighbors. This is why he says what he does in verse 10. That word knowledge is the same word in verse, in verse 9 and 10 in chapter 1 as it is here in chapter 3. Verse 10. And so for Paul, this is incredibly important. I think Christians have altogether abrogated any idea of being uh, uh, engaged intellectually with our culture. We seem to be absorbed and embrace anything and everything that comes down the pike. You have a pop star come up and sing some song, and I will guarantee you six months later we'll have a Christian version of it that looks like her and sounds like her. It's ridiculous. 
The culture makes racism a big deal. What does the church do? Oh, yeah, let's just get all, all about that. Last Sunday was Reconciliation Sunday, but it wasn't about Christ's reconciliation on the cross. It was about reconciliation with each other. That's ridiculous. You can't have that if you don't know the first one. But there was no talk about that. God does not leave them to themselves. He does not leave us to ourselves that way. This renewal, this renewal is based in something that Paul speaks of here in verse 10. It's based in the truth. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this truth changes us from head to toe, inside and out, and causes us to think. Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. So this transformation changes the way we think. And it causes us to think about some very important issues, issues which all philosophy or any ideology has to answer. Such core fundamental questions like this, creation, how did it all begin? Where did we come from? The fall, what went wrong? What is the source of sin and suffering? Redemption, what can we do about it? How can the world be set right again? Those are the core questions that we're going to have to resolve, and as we understand God's Word, we can answer those questions biblically based upon a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created us, not according to our own desires or passions or wants. There are only two ways that these sets of questions can be answered. It's by the mind described in Colossians 121. So let's go back there for a minute. Paul teases out the distinction between the two humanities. Remember who you once were? This, this is a great contrast. Paul is writing to believers in Colossae. This is an epistle written to saints. Colossians 1, 1 and 2. Verse 21, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That's the other humanity, humanity in Adam 1, but now you're the new, new humanity in Adam 2. That's Paul's point. So there are only two ways these questions can be answered. By the mind described in Colossians 1.21 and Colossians 2.8, the one who, when he talks about the false teacher, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than what? According to Christ. So there's only two ways to think about things in the world, folks. There's only two ways. Not Democrat and Republican, but in the context of, of how the world sees things and how Christ sees them and how Christ communicates about them. So this is what Paul's talking about in 3.10, renewed according to the true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. Significantly, Paul immediately reveals that this renewal knows no barriers. Now think about this. This renewal knows no barriers, be they cultural, genetic, geopolitical, or societal, because a true knowledge of Christ eclipses all of that. Christ is the focus, not us. Not us. 
You see, all who are in Christ will and necessarily must reflect the reality of their new humanity, which breaks down and destroys the secular worldview of everything. In Christ, all religious and natural boundaries have disappeared, replaced by the one people of God forged together by the blood of the cross. That's what's going on. And so when I hear about churches talking about critical race theory and all the different things that are going on and how we have to use secular ideas, Marxist ideology to resolve racism within the church, are you kidding me? All that's doing is creating more barriers. And it isn't interesting that the false teachers in Colossae were creating barriers by imposing upon them structures and perspectives about mankind that were not consistent with Scripture. That's what false teachers do. The false teachers brought barriers back in. Paul breaks down all barriers because in Christ there are no barriers. That's the point that Paul is making. Regardless of the way the world may see things, we see, we see this world through new eyes, a new mind that is able to identify non-biblical worldviews and analyze where they go wrong, not embrace them as we so often do today among so-called progressive Christians and deconstructionists, which hold to a, a sacred uh, a secular dichotomy that restricts Christianity to the realm of religious truth creating double minds and fragmented lives. Oh, it's okay for you to have biblical thoughts about religious things, but don't put them in the culture. The only thing that can resolve racism isn't the gospel. It's critical race theory. It's, it's saying things at conferences like David Platt. Why is this conference so white? Well, I'll tell you why it's so white. Because you and your colleagues stopped preaching the gospel 60 years ago. And you engaged in a social secular construct. You were not living in the context of your new humanity in Jesus Christ. You were not teaching people in accordance with the true knowledge of Jesus Christ who had created them. That's why this conference is so white. And instead you propped up somebody who was a politician, called him a preacher, and put him in every church in the South. And what was the consequences of that? dead churches with unregenerate people. That's what's going on. Pure and simple. Paul is saying to us that there is a consequence to our regeneration that makes our minds work in a different way. We reject the secular. We embrace the divine. We look to his word, which contains the truth, and we deal with people in the context of that capital T truth all the time. That is total reality. You step outside of that paradigm and you are in a no man's land of a mess. And you'll get nowhere. You'll get nowhere. This is permeating Christianity today at a rate that's, that's remarkable to me. Look what Paul says in Romans. Romans chapter 12. Here, Paul, after giving us amazing accounts of this salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, says this, 
in verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, what is good and acceptable and perfect? Well, Paul tells me in Colossians chapter 3, he reminds me that in the context of this renewal, that there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. If I'm going to deal with the problems of whatever ism it might be, racism or other things that are going on in the church, I must first deal with the issue related to their position before Christ and the message of the gospel. If I don't do that, if I'm not approaching the world in that context, I am never going to see anything happen other than what's going on, which is nothing. Paul says in Colossians 3.10 that our new humanity in Christ is all in all aspects of every facet of our lives. If there's no distinction, as Paul says, then we must be willing to lay bare all aspects of our work and life to God's direction and power. As Francis Schaeffer said, Christianity is the truth about total reality and the intellectual holding of that total truth and then living in the light of that total truth. It's this kind of worldview thinking. This kind of worldview thinking is the only avenue to joy, true, full unmitigated joy and fulfillment in Christ, a means of letting the power of God's truth light up every nook and cranny of our lives, of our lives. Friends, when we see this, we have to understand and comprehend the magnitude, the wonder, the great privilege the honor that we have of being this new humanity. We are, the, we are the joint heirs of Jesus Christ. We have been brought in union with Jesus Christ. We are his people. He is our king. We live in his kingdom. We belong to him and not ourselves. What are we doing? What has happened to the church? There's no place for critical race theory. There's no place for... For, for forms of, of, of advocating white privilege amongst the redeemed of, of God? Is that going to resolve somehow the problems of other people's sin? No, what people need is the gospel, pure and simple. And if you're not going to give it to them, get out of the way and stop it. These people are interfering. They're creating false hope. They're like false teachers. That's what they do take people's minds off the real thing that matters and make them focus on other things that don't matter. Now, are relationships important? Absolutely, they're important, but they can't be fixed and they can't be corrected until we deal with their heart. A person outside of Christ cannot deal with their anger, with their slander, with their bitterness, with their sexual immorality in the context of the manner that's pleasing to the Lord, nor will they relate to other people in the context as God designed it and intended until that's resolved. And that is our message. We give them Jesus Christ. And as you and I grow in the renewal of our minds, in accordance with the knowledge that the Word communicates to us, we become more convicted and more passionate and more persuasive about this message that is so important. We must 
We must recognize this. I'm going to leave off there this morning, but I trust that you see the importance of what Paul is saying here with respect to this amazing transformation that has taken place in us. Living, resting, trusting, hoping, always, only in Jesus Christ. That's all that ultimately matters. Do you know him? Do you know Jesus Christ? That's a very important question. Eternity is forever. And oh, by the way, just so we're clear, when you get to heaven, there's not going to be any critical race theory. You're not going to have to read a book on white privilege. And it just boggles my mind why we think that stuff is going to work here in the church when it's not going to be present in heaven. The church is just a microcosm of heaven. No, what you'll be doing in heaven is praising the name of a blessed Redeemer who saved you out of the context of that sin, changed your life, changed your heart, made you new creation in Christ Jesus, let you see your sin for what it is, and then kept you safe and secure in the finished work of Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever and ever. And you get to rest in that, and that's the source of your joy. And it will be forever. Do you know him? Do you know him? Lord, we love you. Thank you for this day. Thank you for what you've given to us in your word. Thank you for its clarity. Thank you for um, its ability to change and to uh, break down barriers that are false and, and um, harmful. We, we rejoice that we are known by you. Thank you for the change of our heart. Thank you for giving us new ears and eyes to hear and to see and to comprehend all that you have for us. May we take what has been communicated in the word today and to uh, live for you in a way that reflects the transformation that has taken place. May others see it in our lives. May we have an impact on those around us based upon who we are in this new humanity, the way that we live differently, the way that we talk differently, the way that we address issues in our culture differently, all with a focus to the message of the gospel the hope that is in Jesus Christ alone. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for loving us so very much. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you.